I don't know if you caught it, but early in the video, there's just this one little segment where Kenny says, Matt's right. <laughs> and I had him pull that out. We put it on a loop. I just play it over and over again in meetings. Matt's right. Matt's right. Matt's right. Uh, why did Kenny and I decide to put on this master class in acting for you? We wanted to remind you that in the fall, we looked at Romans chapter 1 through 4 in a sermon series that we called Romans Road. And over the course of looking at Romans chapter 1 through 4, we saw essential gospel truths. And in order to remind us of those truths, I want to bring back the diagram that we used in order to summarize those truths when we were looking at the first four chapters of Romans. And the diagram looks like this. And you may remember that we said we were born on a pathway of selfishness, sin, and disobedience. And if we remain on that pathway of selfishness and sin, there is a judgment day and we will receive punishment or wrath towards our sin if we remain on that lower path. But then we were reminded of the gospel. Remember what Romans 1.16 says? I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. When we place our faith and trust in Jesus we can move from this bottom path of sin and selfishness to the upper path of love and obedience and righteousness. And what awaits those on the upper path on the judgment day is forever with God and all that is good. And this is what we looked at in those first four chapters, that we can, through faith in Jesus, be saved. Now, the word that we saw again and again in those first four chapters for salvation was the word justified. Through faith in Jesus, we can be justified. The Greek word translated justified means to be declared innocent or righteous in a courtroom. And God was teaching us, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we can be declared innocent, totally righteous in God's courtroom. Not through our own righteousness, right? but through the righteousness of Jesus. He takes my sin and my punishment upon himself and he gives to me his righteousness so that I can be declared righteous in his courtroom. Now, as Joel was talking about, we're moving on to the second four-chapter segment in the book of Romans, chapters 5 through 8, in a sermon series that Kenny and I have very creatively called Romans Road Part 2. Right? You put the two of us in a room, it is just pure creativity and ingenuity. And so we enter into Romans Road Part 2, in which we're looking at how those who have been saved, who have been justified by Christ, have their lives completely transformed by his work. And we're going to start today in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, where God is going to outline for us the blessings that are ours because we've been justified by our faith in Jesus. He's just going to list one blessing after another for us that are ours in Christ Jesus. As a matter of fact, as we work through this uh, passage, Romans 5, 1 through 11, it's going to remind me a little bit of what I experienced at my sister-in-law's house last Sunday on Easter. Uh, Last Sunday, I was here uh, all morning, as were many of you. 
And when I'm going to speak on a Sunday morning, I generally don't eat a lot for breakfast because uh, it, it tries to come back up. You really wanted to know that, didn't you? Absolutely, you did. That was key information for you this morning. And so I don't eat a, a big breakfast, and so usually by the end of the second service, I'm really ready to eat. I'm really hungry at that point. And last week, we stuck around and talked to people until almost 1 o'clock, and then we went and got in the car for our 45-minute drive up to the northwest suburbs to Erica's sister's house. By the time we arrived at her sister's house, I was so hungry that the steering wheel was looking like a donut. I was about ready to just <laughs> bite right in. Oh, And we walked in and were greeted by the delicious smells of the Easter buffet that was being prepared. I'm telling you, I, I have a picture of an Easter buffet up here, but this does not do justice to what I experienced last week. It was just loads of ham and turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy, and then there were the au gratin potatoes with so much cheese on it. There were three different kinds of casseroles. I don't know what they were called, but they all had cheese on them and crispy things all over the top of them. And there were salads that weren't just a composition of vegetables. They were like delicious salads that were pretty much dessert that you were eating. And all of these carbs with butter that you could put all over it, and I haven't even gotten to dessert. Oh my, it was so, it smelled so good. And when we got there, we were informed, it's not ready yet. And so I sat, and I waited patiently. Nope. I sat, and I waited. And I waited and finally, we were told, it's ready. And I began to play that game that we play in our heads where I tried to calculate how many people need to go in front of me so that I don't seem rude, and yet I still get into line as soon as possible. And when I went through that buffet of foods, I took the serving spoons and I would just take heaping mounds of one, one thing of deliciousness after another and load it up on my plate. I was like, oh, yeah, that looks delicious. Big mound of that. Oh, that looks great. Big mound of that. Until my plate was just heaping with all kinds of deliciousness all over it. And I went back to the table and I mowed it all down and was so satisfied. It was so good. And that reminds me of the passage today because what God is going to show us is if we've been justified in Jesus, God has just taken one giant ladle full of blessing after another and piled it on our plate so that we can revel in the goodness that he has given to us. All right, enough of that. Let's dig into these blessings that God is heaping on our plate as those who have been justified by Jesus. The first blessing is the biggest one. We get peace with God. Peace we got. Therefore, since we have been, here it is, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, the first scoop of blessing in our, on our plate is the biggest one. We have peace with God. Why do we need peace with God? Because I was running in the opposite direction of what God designed me for. Before Jesus saved me, my life was filled with sin and selfishness and disobedience. And so if there was a battlefield, and over on that side was the army of pure love and righteousness, I was over here on this side, opposed to God. As a matter of fact, Romans 5.10 puts it like this. It's going to say 3.10 here, but that's actually 5.10. It says, for if, while we were enemies, right, standing across the battlefield from God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. 
I, I was on the opposite side from God, but, G, but God was not satisfied with that. And so he sent his son to bring reconciliation. And so now I am on God's team in his army. And as we saw on Easter, I've been adopted into his very family. I have peace with God because of what Jesus has done. And that is the beginning of peace in our soul and peace with other people. There is no peace in our soul and peace with other people if we don't start with peace with God. And that is blessing number one we receive if we've been justified with him. But that's just the first blessing, right? The second blessing is this. We have standing in his grace. Standing in his grace. Now, the word stand is up there, but I want you first to focus on this word access. Access. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. The picture of this entire verse is of a king's throne room. And we're told that we have been granted access. This Greek word, prosagoge, means to be ushered into the king's very presence, to be invited and ushered into the king's presence. In ancient times, you didn't just march in to see the king whenever you wanted. Hey, king, I've got an idea. No, people didn't have that kind of access. You had to be called into the king's presence and then ushered by the guard into the king's presence. And that word for access here, that Greek word prosagoge, means to have been called and ushered in to the king's presence. And it's in the past tense. This has happened in your life if you've been justified. There is no waiting. There's nobody ahead of you in line. You have access right now into the throne room of the grace of God. Right into his grace. But even more than that, you're not just ushered into his presence. You get 30 seconds there and then you have to move on. Because he says, not only do we have access But we stand in the grace of God. That word for stand, the Greek word there, means to be rooted or to grow roots. So not only are we ushered in and have access to the king, but we grow roots right there in the throne room of God's grace. Deep roots, and we cannot be moved. Because God has started something good in us, he's going to see it through to completion. And so we have forever access into his very grace. We've grown roots in the throne room of God's grace. Because we have that forever rootedness in God's grace, we have hope and rejoicing in the glory of God. You have access to God's throne and all of his grace. You have standing in his grace. And so, you have a constant hope and rejoicing in your life right now because your forever is in the presence of the glory of God. And that overwhelms everything else that we face in life. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but let me say that again. It overwhelms anything else that we'll face in life. If I can break out another silly illustration here, let's say that there were four prizes that you might win. And the four prizes were a candy bar, a pair of shoes, a new bike, or a million dollars. How would you feel if you found out you only won one of those prizes? And that the only prize that you won was the million dollars. How much time would you spend 
lamenting the fact that you hadn't won the candy bar. Right? How much time would you spend going, oh, I've got to keep wearing these old shoes? There were new shoes! No, you're not going to lament any of that. Why? Because the great prize of the million dollars overwhelms the fact that you didn't get any of those lesser things. In the same sense, the great prize of having rooted standing in the grace of God and forever in his glorious presence overwhelms all of the other things that we face in this life. Everything else is minor compared to the grace of God that he has given to us. And so it overwhelms everything else in our life. And we have constant hope, constant rejoicing in him. Now, there are times, you guys, where my eyes, or I should say my eyes, are not focused on the eternity and unseen things of God. Instead, they're focused on my circumstances all around me in daily life. And when my eyes lower from that eternity that God has given to me and all of that gracious blessing and instead get focused on the circumstances of my daily life, there are times where I go, I have to have broccoli instead of a candy bar. I have to keep wearing these old shoes. I get focused in on the minor things when my eyes lower to these circumstances, the daily circumstances. Instead, God has called us to constantly be raising our eyes to the great prize that is ours in His glory. But this is just uh, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the blessings that are ours. Uh, he is going to pile more on the plate of our blessings, like the fact that we gain character from suffering. That may not sound like a blessing, but friends, it is such a blessing. Because before Christ uh, any sort of suffering or hardship just seemed random and purposeless. But now in Christ, when we go through hard things, which we all do in this life, we recognize it can serve the greatest purpose in our lives. He says here, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. Wait, what? We rejoice because we just love to suffer? No, that's not the call here. God is not calling us to simply be Jesus-oriented masochists who just really love pain. That's not the idea. Instead, what he is saying is we rejoice because that what that pain produces. Not rejoicing in the pain, but in what it produces in our life. Like when we first found out that we were pregnant, however many years ago now. There was so much rejoicing. There was jumping up and down and tears of joy from my wife. Maybe for me too. Right? Why was my wife so happy? Was it because she was going to be uncomfortable for the next nine months? Because she was going to experience constant sickness for the next nine months? Because she wasn't going to fit into her shoes soon. Is that why? Was it because person after person would ignore the t-shirt and come up and rub your belly anyway? No, that, that wasn't why. Why was she excited? It wasn't about the suffering. It was because of what the suffering was going to produce. And in that same sense, we rejoice about what suffering and hardship and challenge can produce in our life. It can produce endurance. It can produce 
endurance in our life. Uh, the Greek word for endurance here is the word hupomone, which was an athletic term that meant to grow strong through pain. I wasn't, I'm not a, I wasn't as good as my kids are at track and field, but I did do some track and field in high school. And there were times where coach would take us out and you would have people who were falling over in the infield and people who were losing their, I mean, we would just run and run. And, and then we'd go in the weight room and we'd lift. It was painful and it was hard. Why were we doing that? Just because we really loved pain, Right? No, because everyone understands the only way to greater endurance and strength is through what? Hardship and challenge. That's, that's the way through. That's the way to that, cha- that endurance, that strength that we want. And that endurance produces something else. What does it produce? It produces character. Character here is the Greek word uh, dokame, which is often used of the process of taking a metal superheating it, and then taking the impurities off of the top. Superheat it again, take more impurities off of the top, leaving the metal purer and stronger. And God brings us through hard and challenging things. And as we do, we we cling to him all the more. And in that clinging to him, we grow in our character. We grow in our relationship with him. We grow in purity We grow in strength so that he can use us all the more. There is an enemy of this process. What's the enemy of this process? It's called comfort, right? Comfort is the enemy of this process. Because sometimes we're tempted to leave the path we need to walk, to leave the hardship and leave the challenge in order to just try and escape to what is comfortable. I did that when I was a freshman in high school. And my coach gave us this crazy run that we were supposed to go on. And I didn't want to. It felt very uncomfortable to me. And so I pretended I was sick and stayed back. I won't ask if anyone else has ever done that. What happened? What happened is I grew weaker perhaps in my legs, certainly in my character. And if I chose that path of comfort day after day after day, I would never grow in the strength I was intended to grow in. God understands this. And so if we're going to have an impact for his name and his kingdom, he regularly brings us out of comfort and into challenge and into hardship. Look at the life of David, right? David was a man after God's own heart. He is running in faith when he is out tending the sheep. When he is running for his life from Saul, he is so faithful. The problems in David's life come when? When he moves into the comfort and the opulence of the palace. Was Moses ready to lead the people after 40 years of experience comfort in in the palace of Egypt? No. What did he need so that he was ready to be used by God in order to lead the people? 40 years of discomfort as a shepherd of sheep in a dry and dusty land for his father-in-law, then he would be ready. Because God uses challenge and hardship in order to strengthen our character and get us ready to do ministry in his name. Uh, let me, I, I got to share with you how I experienced this uh, this weekend. Uh, my son does college track. And the event that he does most is called the decathlon. 
When you do the decathlon, you do 10 different events and you compete against these other guys in 10 different events. And the one who essentially wins the most of the events, the one who has the most points at the end of all of those events, wins the decathlon. So he had an opportunity to compete in a decathlon, which was a fairly high-level decathlon for him in Indiana. I drove down to it this weekend and had a chance to watch him. And through the first eight events of the decathlon, much to his surprise, he was winning the decathlon. Then in the ninth event, the javelin throw, he managed to foul all three of his attempts in throwing the javelin. Now, you guys, it's hard to foul once when you throw the javelin. It's just not an event where that happens. And he managed to do it three times. And he went from leading the decathlon to out of it entirely. And he sat there on the ground with his head between his knees and his uh, hands on his head. And I went over and talked to him a little bit, and his coach talked to him a little bit, and his coach said, i got to get back to campus. Would you mind bringing him back the four hours back to campus? And I went, what? You want me to put up with him? I raised him. He's yours now, coach. Are you kidding me? What? No, no, no. So we walked around the track a few more times, and as we were on our way out, a coach from one of the other teams, from a school I'd never heard of before, uh, ran by us. He was actually out for a run. He ran by us, and he turned around, and he came back, and he said, hey. And we turned around, and he said, I want to talk to you. And he walked over to my son, and he said, I want to share with you what God did in my heart in my devotions this morning. Because ever since I saw what happened to you in the javelin, I went for a run, and God really laid you on my heart to be praying for you. And, and I really felt like the Spirit was impressing on me. If you see him, you need to share with him what I shared with you in my devotions this morning. And so when I saw you, I ran right by you and didn't think, and then I thought, wait, no, that's not what God's calling me to do. So I turned around and I came back, and I want to tell you, God was sharing with me in my devotions this morning, Psalm uh, 119.71. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse, and he went through a whole series of verses that are all about how God uses challenges and hardship in order to produce character and greater commitment to him. And my son just sat there, taking this in, letting the scripture wash over him as this coach who we'd never seen before from some school I've never heard of acted as an emissary of God in my son's life in order to say, look at what God does through hardship and through challenge. Now, if my son had gone on to win the meet, there's other ways he could have grown, but there is a unique way that he can grow right now. And that coach said, I want you to not only think about the ways that you can draw close to Christ and grow in your relationship with him through this hard thing. He said, he said to him, this was so good. I want you to think about the other athletes you're going to see who go through this same thing and how God's going to use this experience to make you more compassionate in their lives so that you can reach out to guys from other teams who are going through this and share the love of Christ with them. Right? I, I don't know. I'd never met him before. I kind of wanted to hug him. I even said to my wife, I got I to gotta find that guy's email address and send him an email. Like Just the ministry over my son in that moment on a sidewalk as we were getting into our car outside of the track. It was all about what? It was all about this. About how God can uniquely use challenge and hardship 
in order to produce strength and character in our lives so that we can draw closer to him and do greater ministry. It is one of the greatest blessings that God scoops onto our plate. No longer in Christ Jesus is hardship meaningless and random. Instead, it has deep meaning for us and a deep purpose in our lives. All right, we got, we got to move on to the next blessing. That was, I didn't mean to say all of that. All right, we have hope. Character produces hope. But the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, it's not like the kind of hope we might think of that is just a, a, a random desire in the unlikely. I hope I win the lottery. Well, what are the chances? Right? One in, I don't know, whatever billion that I would win the mega millions or something like that. I hope the Vikings win the Super Bowl. Right? What are the chances of that? They're worse than winning the lottery, right? <laughs> That's not what the Bible means when it uses the word hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, it means uh, to look to something that is assured in the future that keeps us going in the present. Right? To look to something that is assured in the future that keeps us going in the present. On Easter Sunday, as I was sitting there eating all of that food, it began to snow harder and harder on Easter Sunday. And one of my relatives sitting across the table threw up their hands and said, Why do we live here? Why do we live here? If the weather for 12 months was nothing but cold and snow, many people in this room would make plans to move. Right? We would leave if it was like that 12 months. But we have hope. We have an assurance. You may not believe it today. All right? I need, I need you to work with me here. We have an assurance that there will be better weather. Maybe a month from now, three, that, that week of summer in August, whatever it is, we have an assurance there will be better, and it keeps us going right now in a far more solid way. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have this assurance of the inheritance that's ours that we will be in the glorious presence of God forever, and it keeps us going right now. We keep our eyes constantly over here on this assurance, and it keeps us running towards becoming like Christ and being with Christ. We have this hope. When we see God producing, right, because this is linked to the phrase before it, when we see God producing character in us through hardship, when, when we are growing better in hardship rather than bitter in hardship, what it reveals to us is that Christ is at work in us and it gives us hope that we've been justified and have a future in him. We have hope. That is blessing number four. Blessing number five. There's only 140, don't worry. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Who has been given to us? The Holy Spirit has been given to us. God in his great love has poured his Holy Spirit into us that only produces greater and greater love in us. It's the Holy Spirit who guarantees all of the blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. Look at what Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says about the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives. 
It says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That word seal that I've underlined up there is the word for the family seal or the family signet. And when it was placed on something, it showed who owned it. I, I have a family seal, and when I put that seal onto something, it showed, okay, that is owned by that family. And what Ephesians chapter 1 is saying is, you've been sealed with the family signet ring of God. That's the Holy Spirit. He has placed his seal over you so that it is clear you belong to God. Not only that, we're told that the Holy Spirit is the deposit, or some of your translations have here down payment. It's the same idea. The Holy Spirit is the down payment on all of the blessings that are ours and will be ours. What is a down payment? I buy a house. I put a down payment down. And that assures that I will be making the payments I've promised in the future or else I will lose that down payment. Now sometimes, in our broken world, among broken people, we don't make all of those payments and we lose the down payment, right? But do you think that ever happens to God? No. Right? He's made the deposit on you. He's made the down payment of the Holy Spirit. And so what he's begun in you, he is going to bring it to completion. The Holy Spirit's the down payment assuring you of all of these blessings that you will receive. The next blessing that we see in this passage is you've received salvation from God's wrath. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the what? He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We have salvation from the wrath of God. The amazing truth of the gospel is Jesus didn't die for good people. That would be an empty set. There, there are no good people. There are only sinners. And Jesus has died for you, for me, for sinners. Jesus died for people whose mouths were filled with gossip, and their eyes were filled with lust, and their hearts were filled with pride, and, and their stomachs were filled with gluttony, and on and on. That's who Jesus died for. As a matter of fact, it was while we were in the midst of our sin that Christ died for us. Jesus didn't say, well, Matt, get your life cleaned up to here and then maybe I'll love you enough to die for you. No, while I was in the midst of the worst of my sin, God looked at me in that moment of my life that I don't want anyone else to ever see. He looked at me and said, I love you. And I'm going to die for you. Because he did that, we are saved from the wrath or the proper punishment for our sins. Uh, the wrath for sin is described in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. You'll punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 
They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The punishment that we, w- that we would receive if we remained in our sins comes from God and it involves being shut out from the presence of God and all of the glorious presence of God. Now, I have known people over the course of my life who if you tell them the punishment for sin at the judgment is that you'll be shut out of the presence of God would say, good, I've been doing just fine without him here on earth. I don't want him. I'll have plenty of fun on my own. What's wrong with that thinking? What's wrong with that thinking is that every good thing that we experience in this life, whether we recognize it or not, has its origin in God and flows out of God. James chapter 1, 16 and 17 says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. To experience life completely devoid of the glorious presence of God is to experience life completely devoid of any good thing we experience in this life. It's to be shut out from any real love, to be shut out from any sense of real community or joy or blessing, or peace. So if you're able to imagine an existence that is only filled with anxiety, loneliness, pain, regret, hate, this is life separated from God and all of his glory. And yet, what do we see here? Jesus has justified us, and so we are saved from that. And are instead saved to a life that is filled with God, and all that is good. One more short blessing. We have rejoicing through Jesus. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We have rejoicing through what Jesus has done. It wasn't possible to rejoice in God before Jesus. Why would we? There'd be no reason to rejoice in God before our salvation. We didn't acknowledge him as king. We didn't acknowledge his way as the right way. There was no rejoicing before Jesus. But now through the work of Jesus Christ, our lives are about rejoicing in God and all of his goodness. And God has made us so that there is great rejoicing in relationship with him but we can experience even greater rejoicing as we praise him altogether. There's even greater rejoicing in our relationship with God when we brag about him to others and rejoice in him together. And so we want to spend some time right now rejoicing in Jesus. Uh, To start that, I'm going to put up all of these blessings that we have seen scooped onto the plate of our life through the justification that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to just look at those seven things and to give God thanks for what he has done in your life.